East, west, north and south, all roads led to Rome. Welcome to Inside Out. This is the show that turns Disney World... Oh, in uh, Disneyland. You got that right. Upside down to show you the magic behind the scenes. Nobody actually lives at today's Epcot Center, but the futuristic theme is alive and well. Ladies and gentlemen, our time travels have been momentarily delayed. Please remain seated. Hi everybody, I'm J.D. Roth and welcome to a very special edition of Inside Out. I'm here this week at Walt Disney World in Florida along with my buddy W Radio Your Information Station Welcome to the WDW Radio Show Your Walt Disney World Information Station Thanks for tuning in once again this week This is show number 72 for the week of June 22nd, 2008 I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and I am very excited about this week's show. I don't have any news or rumors this week, but I will have an announcement before getting to my first guest. And part of the reason why I'm so excited about this week's show is because of whom my first guest is. Disney Channel fans may remember a series from the mid-90s called Walt Disney World Inside Out, which took you literally behind the scenes of the parks every week. Well, this week... I'm joined by one of the hosts of what was probably my favorite show on television, J.D. Roth. We'll talk not only about his career and experiences on the show, but what he's been doing ever since. You may not know that he's one of Hollywood's hottest producers, with not only many popular reality game shows to his credit, but he's also going to be the host of a new show coming to ABC later on this year, unlike anything that's ever been done in the past, and best of all, He's going to tell you how you and your family can be a part of it. And you don't have to go to Hollywood because JD and the show will come to you. Continuing in my Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World series where we explore some of the things that truly make Walt Disney World such a magical place, this week we'll take a detailed look back at the overwhelming choice of almost everyone who cast a vote. We'll explore the history, story, and technological marvels that make Spaceship Earth more than just an icon for a theme park. It's a classic attraction that gives us all a sense of our collective past and acts as a symbol of our hopes for the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I mentioned at the top of the show that there would be no news or rumors this week, and I apologize, but that's partially due to the fact that this is an already long episode, but there was something I did want to mention at the top of the show. As you may know, I've been working on the second CD in my audio guide to Walt Disney World series of CDs. The first was Main Street USA, and the second is Adventureland. So what exactly are the audio guides to Walt Disney World? Well, they're virtual guided walking tours of the history, trivia, hidden treasures, and overlooked details of Walt Disney World as I narrate in detail what you see and hear, all with the ambient sounds of the lands we're actually touring to give you the sense that you're really there in the parks. 
The series is beginning with each of the lands in the Magic Kingdom and will continue on at Epcot, Disney's Hollywood Studios, Disney's Animal Kingdom, and more. You can listen at home, at work, or in the car to really get the sense of being there as we explore the parks in depth to help you either plan your next magical vacation or learn more about the details and the people that make the magic happen. You can also take the guide with you to the parks in order to enhance your experience while you're there. For those listeners that are visually impaired, you can experience Walt Disney World virtually at home or take the tour along with you when you visit the parks as I describe in detail everything that surrounds you. Our journey through Walt Disney World began with Main Street USA and is going to continue in my next CD as we go through the four corners of the globe as we venture deep into Adventureland in the Magic Kingdom. And I'm happy to announce that I have a tentative release date for the CD, which should be on or about July 14th. It'll be available as both a CD and a full jewel case with liner notes, track listings on the back, yes, there are tracks in this one, and full artwork. It'll also be available as an instantly downloaded file, just like Main Street USA is. The prices are still $9.99 for the CD and $7.99 for the download. Again, the download also contains all the artwork as well in a separate file, but you can download the file instantly after you make payment, burn it to a CD, etc. But here's the good news. Beginning on Monday, June 23rd, I'll begin to accept pre-orders for the CD version and as a pre-order special if you order both Main Street USA and Adventureland on CD as a combo, you can save $1 off the price of each of the CDs. Both CDs will ship together as soon as Adventureland is ready, but you can be assured that you will get them before anyone else. The download is not available for pre-sale at this time, but will be up on the site soon. Obviously, stay tuned for announcements on the show as to when that will be available. For more information, visit the shopping page over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. I also played a clip from Main Street USA last week to give you just a small sample of what you might hear. You can also see a short video preview teaser on the site at DisneyWorldTrivia.com as well. Look for an Adventureland video coming in the next few days. And if you're wondering if this is the something big that I said is coming... Don't tell him, Carlos. Don't be chicken. I am not chicken. I will not talk. It's not. Not even close. But I will hint to you that the big announcement will coincide with and does celebrate the release of the guide, so stay tuned next week for the big announcement. To order a copy of the guide or to pre-order Adventureland, visit DisneyWorldTrivia.com, click on the link for the shopping page. There you'll also be able to find out more information about the guide, as well as read some user reviews and check out the video as well. Hype him aloft again, matey. Welcome to Walt Disney World Inside Out. The weekly show that keeps you up to date and takes you behind the scenes at Walt Disney World. Brian Leary, George Foreman, and J.D. Roth. You may remember some time ago when the Disney Channel's lineup was quite different from what we see today. And one of the most popular shows explored Walt Disney World in much the same way I try and do on this show, and thus was one of my personal favorites. 
It was called Walt Disney World Inside Out, and it ran in the mid-90s for a few years. And one of its hosts was J.D. Roth. Well, today, J.D. is going to join me on the show to talk about working on Inside Out, as well as what he's been doing ever since, including the more than 1,000 episodes of reality TV game shows and a very exciting new project that he has coming on next. So it's my pleasure to welcome the person who, for many years, held the job that I had always wanted for myself, J.D. Roth. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) It was a great job, though, man. I mean, how much fun is it? Once a month, you get a phone call. It's like, okay, you're going to come out for this week. What resort do you want to stay at? What, you know, reservations do you want for food? I mean, it was like, it was the greatest gig ever. And you want to talk about a show that looks like you just had a blast doing, uh, you know, it really seemed to come through every week. Oh, I mean, come on, you get to hang out at Disney World and with George Foreman. You know, <laughs> he covered the food, I covered the rides. What, what better thing could you possibly ask for? I mean, that, that's not really like a job. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. And, you know, like I said, I think that's where people probably will know and recognize you best from. But before we get to Inside Out itself, um, tell us a little bit about your background and maybe what led up to that role. Now, you are a fellow Jersey guy, correct? Yeah, yeah, from way back. I grew up uh, in South Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, everything growing up was solved with a cheesesteak. <laughs> if you were happy, you had a cheesesteak. If it was your birthday, you had a cheesesteak. If you were sad, you had a cheesesteak. If you were sick, you had a cheesesteak. Now, wait, were you, a, were you a Pat's guy or a Gino's guy? Uh, you know, I was more of a Jim's guy, to be honest, on South Street. <laughs> Jim's okay. steaks, um, you know, where the guy would sweat right in the meat, you know, <laughs> while he was cooking it, and that just added flavor. <laughs> Um, but certainly, if, if it's between Geno's and Pat's, I go Geno's for sure. I'm with you. I'm with you. I went to Villanova, so I made many late-night runs over to Geno's. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a staple. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, growing up, you know, I, this is my 30th year in show business. I had always wanted to be on television since as young as I can remember and my parents can remember. I would used to roll up the TV guide and interview all the neighbors and, and anyone that was in the house. <laughs> it just, I think it was just in my DNA. <clears throat> And uh, there, was n- there was no getting around it. Um, and I, went, I came out to Los Angeles to go to USC. Um, 3,000 people auditioned to get into the BFA program, and 30 people get in. And uh, I was lucky enough to get in. And in my second year of school, I got a show called Funhouse, which in the late 80s and early 90s was the number one kid show in America. It was on every day after school and was a, you know, a real popular uh, kid's game show. Sure. And that was sort of put me on the map. Um, the beginnings of how my life was going to change. And I remember telling my nice, you know, Jersey mom that I would, uh, I would go back to college and finish. The first year, I wasn't on the air doing a show, and that was 21 years ago. <laughs> so it's still it's on the radar. Yeah, it's, it's on the radar somewhere in the future. But you actually, there's an interesting story that you did because in the gap of time between when you were interviewing people at home and one and out to California, you, like you said, were very much involved in sort of setting up your own gigs as far back as age 11, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the way I got into show business is kind of unique. I, uh, I called and impersonated my dad's voice on the phone and got um, an audition for this showcase in New York. And, you know, of course, my dad said, listen, I'm done with this. I'm going to take you on this thing. You're not going to get it. And then I don't want to hear about it again. And we had, our family had never even been to New York City before. It was an hour and 45-minute drive. They drove us there. The line was around the block, a New York City block, and five people got the part. It was me, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, who I'm sure you know, uh, Ricky Lake, who I'm, I'm sure you know, and a couple other people. And, th- and that was it. And 
still to this day when I run into Sarah or Ricky, it's always like a big hug and, oh my gosh, do you remember when we were kids and we did that? You know, because that was kind of our start. Um, and, and that really was the beginning of how my career got, got off. And you appeared on a number of soaps and uh, other shows like Charles in Charge, As the World Turns, The Equalizer, Tales from the Dark Side. And then, like you said, around 19, you started working on Funhouse. Tell us how you really took that show from TV and took it on the road. Well, I'd always grown up going to theme parks as a kid. And, you know, they'd have, like, celebrities signing autographs. And I always thought as a kid how cool that was. And I thought, you know, if we did a live version of Funhouse in these theme parks, the kids are going to show up. It, it would be huge. And uh, I went to uh, Warner Brothers, who, who owned the show, and said, you know, I, what I really wanted to do. And they said, ah, you're a 19-year-old kid. Just go back, you know, do your episodes, and, uh, and leave us alone. <clears throat> and I wouldn't leave them alone. I kept bugging them about it. I really wanted it. And finally, they gave me the rights for free. And um, I put two and two together and realized that Warner Brothers owned all the Six Flags parks in America. So it became a very easy phone call. I picked up the phone and said, hey, I'm doing this Warner Brothers show, and I have the rights to this live tour. I'd really like to do it in your market. Um, and then, you know, believe it or not, thousands and thousands of kids showed up. And then that theme park would talk to the next one, who would talk to the next one. And before I knew it, at 19, I had booked 70 cities around the country. Um, and it was a very big tour. And the funny part was, I wasn't even old enough to rent a car. <laughs> so here we were on this, you know, multi-million dollar tour, and we had to have people drive us around because nobody would rent us a car. Um, so it, it was a great time in my life to be, you know, doing five, you know, 5,000 seat amphitheaters. All, I'd leave sort of the beginning of summer, come back at the end of summer. I got a couple friends to leave college, and we all sort of did it together. And it was a really fun, uh, you know, couple years of my life. And that sort of was the stepping stone to you starting something called Double Up and really sort of having distinction over at NBC that I'm not sure anybody else has matched at this point, right? Yeah, we, we do a lot of business in NBC, and, you know, I certainly love the relationship that I, that I have there. And it did start a long time ago. And, you know, a lot of people who are under contract to a studio, you know, as a host like I was with Funhouse, they have, you have a lot of free time. People don't realize you shoot five episodes a day. You shoot the whole season in 40 days. You have a lot of downtime, and you're exclusive. You can't really do anything else. A lot of my friends would, you know, surf or go out and party, or, and I just wasn't that kind of guy. I really wanted to um, create a business. I knew that ownership in the end was key, and that if you really want to become kind of a, the Dick Clark model, that you had to think bigger than that. So I started um, coming up with ideas for shows, and the first one I pitched was the NBC, and they bought it. And I really honestly had no idea that they were going to buy it. Um, and, uh, and we made that show, and, and it was great. You know, it was called Double Up. In fact, a couple of the contestants on the show m went on to become fairly large celebrities, one of which was Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, another was Brittany Murphy. And they, they, you know, sort of broke their careers um, as contestants on that show. And it was a, it was a dating show for teenagers. Um, and the show ended up being very popular. And then there was an article in Time magazine with a picture of me, and it said, should this kid be telling you when your kid should date? <laughs> And once the parent groups got behind it, that was sort of the, the, you know, the beginning of the end. Wow. And then at the time, you really were the youngest executive producer at the network, right? Yeah, I was the youngest executive producer um, in the history of, uh, at NBC. Still am, I think, and, uh, or was. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Um, but now, you know, look, I just had my 40th birthday. I've got a you know, 20-year relationship at NBC, 
and um, you know, and love love being there with them, and and at all the networks. You know, I've got great relationships, and we do shows for all the networks. My my relationship even with Scott Bale, it started on Charles in Charge, turned into two seasons of the Scott Bale Show on VH1. So if you know, if you're a big thinker, you you think creatively, and your your mind's always open to new ideas. Um, I think some of the best ideas that that this company has had um, have come out of you know little meetings and little thoughts that turned into something bigger. Excellent, and I agree with you, and I applaud you because thinking big and thinking outside the box uh, is definitely the way to go. How do you go from what you're doing now at Double Up to getting the call or making the call for Inside Out? Uh, it was an audition. You know, I got I got a call. People had, had seen my hosting, and um, believe it or not, Mike Darnell, who runs Fox, knew the people that were producing Inside Out and threw my name out there. And Mike and I have done a lot of work together since um, and have a great relationship. Um, and, uh, and he threw my name out there, and they called me, and I auditioned. And, you know, obviously I hoped that I, that I got the part. It was kind of, a, it's kind of a dream scenario, you know, to go to Disney World once a month throughout the year. Um, in fact, I have the poster. I'm looking at it right now hanging in my office, uh, the cover of the Disney Channel magazine when Inside Out was on the cover with, uh, with me and George Foreman. Now, were you a Disney fan before the show? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how you can be on the planet and not be a Disney fan. You know, my kids also, you know, now are, are huge Disney fans. They watch the old episodes of Inside Out. They love them. They don't. They make fun of my hair, <laughs> um, but they they love the episodes. They've seen every one of them. I was now I was going to ask you if they were making fun of the '90s clothes and the pastels and everything else like oh, that. Oh, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah, yeah. They they make, you know the only downside is just. When you're in Florida outside 12 hours a day in the summer, yeah, it was just so hot, you know. But but the upside was front of the line for every ride, so you know it's a good trade-off. I, I can imagine. And the thing that we sort of as fans really loved about the show was that, like you said, it took place inside the parks. It gave us that couldn't get down there all the time that fix, and it wasn't once a month or once every six months. We got it every week. Yeah, it was. Look, it was great. And um, being able, just as an individual myself, having access to all the things I had access to, the true behind the scenes, you know, going on, uh, looking at rides at night after they were closed, um, going behind the scenes of Disney and watching operations, and what a massive, it's, it's like a, an underground city that they have that runs that place, and the attention to detail that I think Disney has like no other, you know, little things, just like garbage how do you get garbage in and out of a place that's that big why is there never any garbage on the ground anywhere you drop something at disney world and any employee that walks by will pick it up that goes for the guy that runs a ride to someone who, who cleans garbage to the guy that's running the park they see garbage they pick it up they make it their mission to make that place as perfect as possible and i think that pride and that that passion um, for perfection is what makes it such a great place to go to and what we enjoyed was not just seeing what was going on, like you said, on stage, but backstage. And you guys actually used to film sometimes before live audiences inside places like the studios or the Magic Kingdom. Oh, yeah, we did, we did it all the time. I mean, what, what better production value? You have an instant audience everywhere you go. You pull a camera out, and there's thousands of people there. And now, is that a lot, was a lot of that scripted, or was a lot of... It seemed like you just were having fun, interacting with guests, and sort of just doing things ad-libbed as you went along. Yeah, I'd say 90% of it, which is pretty much, my, that's kind of how I do my work, is, um, you know, just right off the top of your head. 
I, I really feel like audiences can tell. You know, they can, they can see the organic nature of your thinking and you ask a question. And I, I believe the best interviewers are the best listeners, not the best talkers. And when you can ask a question and really hear what someone is saying, that provides you with your next question. You don't need someone to tell you what that question is. It's like a normal conversation that you and I are having. Your question, I have an answer, my answer causes you to ask another question. Those are the best interviewers. I, I agree. Uh, the more natural the conversation is, I think the more enjoyable it is for the listener. I totally agree. The other aspect of the show that I loved was the onstage stuff, the behind-the-scenes stuff, but it was also, they used it as a planning tool where they would let you know what was happening in the coming months. So it was something that you could do either if you were looking to go down or if you had plans, so you kind of knew what was happening in the parks. Yeah. I mean, we did that all the time. It's tough to be timely like that, too. Um, you know, to give information out like that, and then the show has to get on the air right at the right time so that, you know, you don't miss those dates for people to follow up on. And, you know, the people who really love Disney are always looking for opportunities to go, and Disney's so smart about creating really unique ones so that every time you visit, it's a different visit. It's not just the same ride again. And, all right, look, I can admit at this point that I was jealous of you for oh so many reasons because I just thought your job was cool and what you were doing was cool, your co-host was Brianne Leary, and yes, maybe I, like many other guys, had a secret crush on her way back in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone, half the crew did. <laughs> you know, she, and she, she was great. She was funny. She was full of energy. She was crazy. She was loud. You know, she was, um, she was all, she's had a lot of energy. She was really fun to play off of. Um, but yeah, a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the crew felt the exact same way. I wonder what Brianne Leary's doing these days. I see. I was going to ask you if you still kept in touch with Brienne. You know, we did in the '90s. She was doing um, New York, you know, New York kind of a local um, morning show, New York Live or something right, like that. Right. Okay. Sure. But I haven't heard. I haven't heard from her in a long, long time. Hmm. Well, Brienne Leary, if you're listening, both JD and I would love to hear from you. Yes, we miss you. <laughs> And the other thing that was just, it was such a funny element of the show, was George Foreman. You know, the, he went from being world championship boxer to nice guy, celebrity, food reviewer on the show, and then obviously, you know, food super superstar with his grilling machine, but he added another fun element to the show as well. He was awesome. I mean, he, the best George story I have for you is we're in, um, you know, uh, um, at, by America there, you know, at Epcot Center. Right. And there's thousands of when george comes out there's thousands of people that you know kind of get in a group around him and we're doing this scene where he and i are eating a hamburger and uh he has he, there's just a simple line he has to say we talk about the burger and the simple line he has to say where we both take a bite of the burger and i say oh george is the best burger i've ever had and he says he's supposed to say yep jd that's gourmet cuisine and so there's tons of people on it's super hot i take a bite of the burger we do our thing oh, that's a great burger and george says yep that's gourmet cuisine and they go, cut, 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 George, it's gourmet cuisine. He goes, yeah, got it, got it, got it. Bring two more burgers in. I take a bite, he takes a bite. I go, George, that is a great burger. He says, yep, J-Day, that's gourmet cuisine. <laughs> and they stop tape. George, it's gourmet cuisine. I got it, I got it. They bring two more burgers in. I take a bite. I go, George, that is a great burger. He goes, yep, J-D, that's good food. <laughs> And that was it. They said, cut, we got it. Close enough. <laughs> I mean, and that's just George. He's bigger than life, huge smile, and he might not always get it that right, but if you let George be George, there's nobody better. 
listen, the guy was punched in the head for a living, so he totally gets a pass if he if he doesn't say cuisine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you, we joke with him behind the scenes about, you know, he, he's named all his kids George. There's Georgina, Georgette. You know, it's like joking with him. So you got Georgina, you got George, you got, you know, another one. I got, is, is the fourth one Joe Mama? <laughs> And then he puts up his hands like he's going to fight me. You know, he's, a, he's the biggest guy you've ever seen. His hands are enormous. I asked him once, I said, George, when you fight, does it hurt? You know, and he leaned down almost, you know, it seemed like forever until he got down to my level. And he said, it hurts so bad. He said, every punch hurts so bad, you almost don't know if you can survive the next one. He said, but the trick is to let them think that you can go on forever. Hmm. I mean, can you imagine a guy that big and it hurts so bad? I, I was, mean, he was tough. Yeah, I mean, I was waiting for me like, no, nah, it doesn't hurt, man. I just keep going and do my thing, and, you know, that's why I'm world champ. No, man. And that was right around the time, you know, when he came out and said he was going to fight again. Wow. And Yeah, he is. <laughs> he, he was a really cool guy. I loved working with him. And you got to meet, I mean, in addition to just those two, you met so many other celebrities on the show and and. Kids, forgive some of these references from the early 90s, but, you know, Rick Dees and Little Richard, Jay Leno, Shaquille O'Neal. I remember um, you also interviewed Thurl Ravenscroft. He's one of the, the Disney legends over in Disneyland, and that was one of the, the segments I remember to this day. Yeah, oh yeah. And, I mean, we got to meet some of the great voices from some of the Disney rides, too. You know, the voice that you just, you always remember. Um, yeah, we, it, it was great. I mean, it really was. It was cool. I was so sad when it ended. But I did get to host uh, with Regis the Christmas Parade and the Easter Parade each year for ABC. Um, so that was kind of a fun thing, too, um, to at least extend. So at least twice a year, you know, I got to go for a little while. Now, looking back, was there a single moment or a single memory or a single person, thing, something that you did that just is that kind of that fondest memory of the show or Disney? You know, it's almost not part of the show. It's kind of ridiculous, but I was dating a girl, and I... I was at Disney, and I flew her out to, to be with me. And we had such an amazing time, um, you know, there. And it really kind of solidified our relationship. And we ended up getting married. And we're still married, and we have two kids. And, you know, and we, now we get to go back to Disney as a family, which the unfortunate part is it's not quite the same because now we're just like regular people going to Disney. <laughs> so I don't get, like, the front of the line. I don't get to go behind the scenes. Um, but it's still, uh, it's still just as fun. So, you know, we go and now we see Disney through our kids' eyes instead of through our own, and it's kind of brand new again. Do you ever walk through the park and get recognized as, as the guy from Inside Out? Uh, you know, not as much Inside Out as uh, shows like Endurance mm -hmm. that, you know, the last six years have been, you know, not only nominated for a bunch of, of Emmys for Best Kids Show, but just they really air a lot on the network, and it's kind of the anchor of the network. So the, the kids definitely know that show. All right. How long did Inside Out run while you were on? It was a, it was a couple of years, two, two or three seasons? I think it was three seasons, but it ran five years. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were rerunning episodes and things like that. And that's the thing. When the show went away, there were so many of us that really, really missed it. And there is, there, you know, fans are still sort of clamoring for a show like that, a show that will come back as a series. So, you know, maybe there's a market for a new show for you. Maybe with yeah, the host... I mean, it's, not, it's not every day that you can do a show like that and you think about it, which is, you know, kind of... It's a Disney show on Disney, about Disney. For It could feel somewhat commercial. That isn't at all. Right. 
you know, because you have such a love kind of for Disney, I think everyone does, and everyone appreciates kind of what they bring, um, that it makes it okay. You know, it's not, I don't think there's too many other opportunities to do something like that that wouldn't feel commercial, because it is so interesting what goes on there that it creates, I think, an endless amount of opportunities for episodes. I don't think you could ever run out of material. You're preaching to the choir, and listen, if you ever decide, maybe go down that road and are looking for a host who's familiar with Disney trivia and history and loves to showcase the hidden treasures, I'll, I'll be more than happy to, to audition. We'll get you and Brian <laughs> Leary together. It'd be perfect. Oh, boy, let me tell you something. Talk about dreams coming true. You bring Jennifer you Love go. bring Jennifer Love Hewitt into the mix, and, and I'm good to go. <laughs> so, and then you work for free. <laughs> so we, you, you were touching on some of the other shows, and I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that you've done many, many shows, both for kids and adults. And when it comes to reality TV, sort of in this in this time, you know, J.D. Roth is the guy. Um, you founded your own production company. Tell us first maybe about some of the kids shows that you've worked on. Yeah, you know, my partner and I uh, met back in the Funhouse days. His name's Todd Nelson. And um, together, we always looked at the kids shows as the second wave in. We would look at what was working in prime time. And then we would kind of be that second wave and say, okay, well, how can we make it work in an original form for kids? And um, Endurance was a, a big breakthrough show for us in uh, right around 2002. And uh, we, we pitched it to the network. Uh, they loved it. They really didn't change what aired was exactly what we pitched. And they really let us do our thing. And what we care about most is telling great stories and really giving kids an opportunity to prove that they're more than just a kid. You know, I'm, I was always tired of people, even parents, the way they talk to their kids. Hi, Billy. How are you? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't talk to my kids that way. And since they were born, I, I talk to them like I talk to you. And I think that the respect that I give kids and even my own kids is the respect that I get back from them. And it's this partnership and this friendship. And, uh, and, and kids really responded to it. So we've done a lot of, a lot of kids shows. Um, as a company... You know, he and I have created a lot of big primetime shows, too. Uh, we created The Biggest Loser, which is on NBC. We created Beauty and the Geek. Uh, we partnered with Ashton Kutcher on that one, um, which, you know, we did five se- our, our fifth season just finished airing. Um, we do a lot of shows on VH1, everything from Breaking Bonaducci to The Scott Bayo Show. We did Age of Love last summer uh, for NBC. And we have a new show, uh, which we're really excited about, um, it's called Opportunity Knocks, and it's going to be on ABC starting in September. And it's a game show. We surprise a family in their own neighborhood, and then we bring in 12 semi-trucks. And like a halftime show in you know, 48 hours, we put up a massive stage on their front lawn and invite their whole neighborhood to come watch. And we do a game show uh, right in their neighborhood. I, and I wasn't supposed to host it. And I was having so much fun with the format and, and working the game and, and sort of making it my own that the network was nice enough to kind of uh, let me do it. And, uh, and it's been picked up, and, and we're doing it for the fall. It sounds like such a, a unique, amazing concept. And sort of having the families play trivia about each other uh, is, is really something that's kind of different, hasn't been done before. Yeah. No, no, you're right. It hasn't been done before. And I, I don't know why, because when you hear it's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to bring the game show to you. <clears throat> so, for some reason in my head, it doesn't seem that original. But the format that we created around it, it really is. 
And it's, I always looked at television as that great campfire that the whole family used to sit around and watch. And now, unfortunately, there's so many choices and so many TVs in everyone's house. You got dad in one room watching ESPN. You got mom watching another channel. Kids are watching Nickelodeon. This show is going to bring everyone back to the same room where they can all sit and watch the show together, which I think is the way television was designed to begin with. Right. And the thing that I like about your shows, and, and just you, know, you mentioned a couple of them, things like The Biggest Loser or Beauty and the Geek or even Scott Bay was 45 and single, and this one, they all kind of have a theme that I think may get lost sometimes in people. Some people sort of look at reality shows, they don't, they don't enjoy them, but all of your shows help people improve their lives or the lives of others, whether it's losing weight or helping people sort of get together, looking past their differences and, and realizing the common bond between them. And this one sort of even, like you said, brings it even closer to home with the immediate family. Yeah, look, that is our brand, and that's always been um, what I've tried to do in television. And I'm proud of the fact that my kids can watch my shows. And I'm proud of the transformative qualities that our shows bring. And I really feel like the, the best storytelling is that big, warm hug. And if you, you can see someone change their life before your eyes, it might inspire you to change yours. And if it does, and we did the right thing, I've never worried about ratings. I've never even thought about you know, how big an audience was going to be. I've always thought about telling great stories that would make people care. Because I think the audience follows. And you know, like I tell my kids, there's only one thing in life I can't teach you, and that's passion. You either have it or you don't. And um, you know, I can teach people how to tell stories, how to edit a show, how to shoot a show. But you can't teach someone how to be passionate. And that's kind of an overused word. But passion means you can inspire other people to do better than they thought they could do. And I think when we inspire someone who's 400 pounds, who thought that their life was over, and we tell them, you know what, it's not over. You're going to get your life back. And by the end of it, the 16 medications they were on, they're no longer taking. Or Beauty and the Geek is something as simple as a girl who's so beautiful, who's used her looks for everything, who thinks she's not smart, realizes she actually is. And she goes back to college and gets a degree. All of those things are something to be proud of, and they're more than just making a TV show. I agree, and, and you're, you can't underestimate the power of having passion in anything that you do. And I think if you've got that passion and love for what you do, like you said, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Going back to Opportunity Knocks, one of the other cool things about the show is the type of surprises that you guys are going to give away as well. I guess we shouldn't sort of minimize um, what these families can eventually win if, in fact, they know each other as well as they hope they do. Yeah, it's life-changing every week. I mean, it's a life-changing amount of money and, and prizes. You know, the pilot, was, it's so much fun to give people money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it really is just so much fun to change somebody's life for the better and to see it on their face. And, and more importantly, that family time that you have you know, even shows like Endurance, like believing in the people that are around you, I think is so important, and it, it provides such a great foundation to build the rest of your life on because that's really all we have are the relationships with our family and friends. And um, if you can nurture those and treat them right and give great examples by way of providing entertainment, then I feel like I've, I've done a good thing, which is, which is great. There are shows that are just pure entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with those either. I mean, I'm fans of those shows, and I'm fans of, of scripted television, big fan. And um, in fact, you know, shows like Lost and you know, Grey's Anatomy, and you know, all, uh, we all watch those those shows for that fantasy element. But the shows that really show someone changing their life or making their life better, you're watching someone have fun. 
um, it's entertaining TV. I agree. And there's actually an opportunity for my listeners and other people to be a part of this show and sort of apply for the show, right? Yes, we are looking for families, plenty of families. Um, and, and the show's called Opportunity Knocks. Um, and, and I think the best way to, I think you can even go on abc.com website. Um, and I think they have an area for auditions. Uh, but, but, and obviously we're three ball productions, so you can call here as well. But we are looking for families right now. We're casting all across the country to find the best ones. And those are the people that we're going to surprise on their front lawn, invite the whole neighborhood, and do a game show, you know, right out there amongst the stars. Now, what kind of tips maybe can you give to a family that's looking to get on this show? What makes a good contestant or a good family? I, I think energy is always great. You know, um, if you're smiling, usually people are smiling around you. And, and people that have great stories. You know, I'm interested in learning about people's families. You know, I'm interested in kind of um, getting a feel for what makes their family tick. What's unique about your family? What's special about your family? Why do you love your family? I think all of those questions are, um, you know, are really important questions to ask. Not so much what a family looks like or where they live. None of that stuff really matters to me. I just love entertaining people that you know love life and have a great story to tell i agree i'm really looking forward to uh to seeing this when it airs in the fall and one last question you know you've produced so many different shows yourself so many different reality shows yourself i I, and really changed sort of the face of reality tv i think because of the theme that that runs through them but if you weren't jd roth the producer and you could be on one reality show what would it be (laughs) you mean to, to compete to compete I could be on one reality show to compete, what would it be on? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I never really thought about it that much. I could tell you one thing, I'd win. <laughs> I know that. I'm incredibly competitive, so I would, I would definitely win. I'm just trying to think of what, sh- so it, didn't, it wouldn't matter which one it would be on, but which one would I, would I want to be on? I would not. I know, I'll start with the ones I can eliminate. I would not want to be on Survivor. Not one bit. I don't like to be that uncomfortable for that long. You know? I agree with you. Laying out in the jungle, getting eaten by bugs and, and scourging for food <laughs> does not sound like my idea of a vacation. Yeah, no, not at all. Now, I am a good sleeper on planes, so race might be a good show for me. You know? I mean, I, I could probably pull that one off. Um, the thought of being locked in a house for a month with a bunch of beautiful women and being the smartest guy there, that's not a bad <laughs> idea either. You know? I mean, there are, there are worse things in life. Um, yeah, I don't know what specific show. I don't know. What about you? You know, I don't know, too. I, I had, my wife and I had actually contemplated doing something like The Amazing Race way back when, but I, I don't think we'd make it. I think I'd kill her <laughs> before the show was over. Right. Um, you know, the first wrong turn that we took. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you say I'd love to be on reality TV, and then when, you, when it comes right down to sort of picking what you'd want to do, maybe it's not as easy as people had thought. So Yeah, you know, it's funny. That amazing Ra- All the problems that you can have on that show can be solved by uh, a, a navigation system, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world. My wife and I, we don't argue about, you know, uh, where we're going ever again. It's like it's the machine's fault if, we're, if we get lost. Exactly. And, and all you do is punch in the address. We go on vacation. It, I call it the, the, uh, the, um, the marriage saver. You know, it's like $4 a day, you get a, uh, that little system in your car when you, when you travel, and it's nobody's fault where you're going. You punch in the address, problem solved. <laughs> Very true. That amazing race would have no show if you had navigation. That's right. That's right. So You know? 
Well, excellent. I, I, I'm like I said, I'm look really looking forward to seeing Opportunity Knocks. Uh, you can still find a lot of your other shows still on TV. Uh, unfortunately, Inside Out is not one of them. But I really appreciate you taking time out of what I'm sure is a very very hectic schedule to come on and talk to me and look back, just not on that show, but you know what else you've been doing ever since. Uh, I'm excited about what you're doing, and really, again, JD, I really congratulate you on, on all your success. Thanks. Hey, it's always nice talking to someone who actually you know, knows what they're doing and does their homework um, and appreciates, you know, all the hard work that, uh, that, I, that I've definitely tried to put in over the years. So um, I appreciate you saying that. And you know what? Just because of this conversation, I'm going to call the people that did Inside Out years ago, and I'm going to see if it's worth bringing that thing back. Wow. You've put it, once again, J.D., you've put a smile on my face. So. <laughs> you know, it seems like it could. So I'll, uh, I'm, I, I'm definitely going to go crack that. Awesome. And again, with the passion and the drive that, that obviously you've demonstrated through the years, uh, I think you can make anything happen you put to your mind to. So thank you so much uh, for everything that you've done um, on behalf of all the fans that enjoy all your work. Hey, you're welcome. In the middle of our streets, our house. In the middle of our Tuesdays this fall, ABC is coming to your house, taking over your neighborhood and turning your life into a game show. You have been chosen to play Opportunity Night. <laughs> Opportunity Knocks, Tuesdays this fall on ABC. And now we celebrate the opening day of Epcot Center. And we proudly dedicate the Bell Systems Spaceship Earth. Uh, in addition to opening the Epcot Center, I'm here to dedicate Spaceship Earth, which is our exhibition here. And also, we have an exhibition in Communicore, which we call FutureCom. Now, as you will soon see, Spaceship Earth's theme is communications civilization and communications from stone age to information age and i therefore think it is very fitting that we dedicate spaceship earth to all of the people who have advanced communications arts and sciences and in so doing have demonstrated that communications is truly the beginning of understanding so now i would invite governor graham Mr. and Ms. Walker, the First Family, and all guests to join me on the inaugural ride through Spaceship Earth. We have just begun on this first day of October 1982. Welcome to Epcot Center, and congratulations to the Bell System on the dedication of Spaceship Earth. Welcome aboard Spaceship Earth. Journey with us now to the dawn of recorded time as we explore the amazing story of human communication. I've been promising you now for some time that I was going to continue on in a segment of the show called The Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World that I started way back when and even on the old show before starting the WDW radio show and with me along the way through the past five wonders that we've been covering is, of course, Jeff Pepper from 2719, who I want to welcome back because we're going to cover another one of the seven wonders, but we're not actually going to cover the last just just yet. So, Jeff, I want to welcome you back. 
Thanks, Lou. Glad to be back. Yeah, Jeff, this is something we've been talking about doing for a long time as either a Wayback Machine segment or a DSI. And I really think that because of where the attraction is now and because of the changes that it's gone through, we need to revisit again almost as as a seven wonder and, and sort of do it again here on the show as a seven wonder. And I'm talking about the very first one that I did and the one that overwhelmingly was voted on and responded to and emailed in by people probably more than anything else, and that was Spaceship Earth. And like I said, for so many reasons, uh, clearly, you know, we talk about something that's a wonder of Walt Disney World. I think we both agree that this is something that qualifies. And it, it truly has been the tro- topic of conversation this past year or so. Uh, significant on so many ways. It went through an extensive refurbishment. It acquired a new sponsor. And most significantly, uh, the very controversial wand that had adorned it for so many years came down as well in time for the, the park's uh, 25th anniversary. So there was a lot of focus and talk about Spaceship Earth these, these past many months. And really, when we covered Celebration 25 and Epcot's 25th, we, to a certain degree, sort of glossed over it because we made a deliberate choice that because it was going through the refurbishment, we didn't want to talk about it. We didn't want to really address it and do the segment again until it was all said and done, until Imagineering said, okay, this is it. This is our final version. And we could really judge it for what it was. And that's why we thought now would probably be a good time to, like I said, look at it not only as a seventh wonder of, of one of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World, but as a Wayback Machine segment, because I want to go back and talk about the history of it, because it's gone through a number of different changes, a number of different narrators, a number of different sponsors, um, all sort of with the same theme, but giving us a little bit of a different attraction. And I think one that, that some of us have personal favorites of. And it's, it's, it's dearly, dearly loved, not just by us, but just by Disney enthusiasts everywhere. It, 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 as you said, when you kind of were polling um, the listeners as to, you know, what one was, and you think about things up there like Cinderella's Castle and the monorail and audio animatronics and that, this still was an overwhelming favorite. And I know you and I talked about this at great length, how excited we were. And I think you're going to see that we're going to talk about it probably with a great amount of passion because of how much we've enjoyed it through the years um, in all of its different incarnations. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm very excited. It's I just wrote it last week, and it, it still thrills me every bit as much as it did some 20 years ago. All right, well, let's go back. You know, let's go back in time and talk a little bit about the history of Spaceship Earth and sort of how it came to be, uh, because it's very interesting some of the elements and some of the people that came together to create this, whether it be the structure itself or whether it be the story. But before we start talking about the physical structure itself, let's talk about the name Spaceship Earth and where that came from. That actually was inspired by the work of somebody by the name of Buckminster Fuller. And although he wasn't given credit for it, it was a reference to a 1963 book that he wrote called The Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, where he wasn't talking about obviously a theme park attraction or even communications, he was really talking about fossil fuels. And he said that as long as we're not foolish enough to exhaust all of our natural resources, we can all exist on this really our spaceship Earth with billions of years of energy. Um, It's also a term that's been used a number of times throughout history since that time, um, including the United Nations Secretary on Earth Day in 1971 when he talked about all of us sort of riding aboard spaceship Earth And Fuller also helped create the physical design itself, which is an 18-story geodesic sphere. I know a lot of people, Jeff, call it a geosphere that's really somewhat of a misnomer. Um, 
it, it is not a dome. It, it's actually a sphere, although it's not really a perfect sphere. Um, although you might not actually realize, if you've ever seen early concept art, at one point it was actually planned to be a geodesic dome spaceship Earth. It wasn't going to be a sphere, partially because they couldn't figure out the engineering and the mechanical elements of it. And there was going to be a huge show building that was going to be sort of facing the plaza or really a big part of the plaza that is now Interventions Plaza. That was going to be the big show building, but the dome itself would have been the finale, sort of what we see now, which is, would have been the large planetarium. And what's important is is that it, it's, it's a very, it was designed as a very iconic representation of Epcot and of the park itself. And that's actually rooted in kind of the world's fair, fair background kind of inspiration of Epcot Center. And it goes back to 1939, the 1939 New York World's Fair in Flushing Meadows, New York, where you had the Trilon and the Perisphere, which were the focal point, much in the way that Spaceship Earth is a focal point of Epcot. And that was, again, the large kind of, you know, globe, you know, it was the Perisphere, very, very similar kind of in, in scope and design. In fact, I believe it was somewhat larger in actual size to Spaceship Earth, and it also contained an attraction within it. So uh, there was some drawing of inspiration on the Imagineers' part going back to, to the World's Fair. And it's really ingenious how they were able to solve the problem of getting the type of attraction they wanted to put inside of Spaceship Earth and have the building sort of support it. Uh, what they did was they had these six pylons that you'll see sunk into the ground 120 to 180 feet deep. But what they are really doing is not supporting the sphere itself. They're supporting a table that's inside about a third to the half of the way up. That basically supports the ride structure, and then the sort of dome is sort of placed on top of that. And because of the shape of what this is and this complex network of triangles, really the bigger that the dome gets, the stronger it gets. And, and I, I think John Hench is actually the one who basically sketched that out on a napkin and was able to solve this engineering problem for the Imagineers. And it's a visual marvel. I mean, that is what is just truly amazing is that structurally and aesthetically it is just it is it's just kind of unbelievable i mean we you'll you'll hear us as we talk about all this be very reverent almost in our tone and <laughs> our and our in our dialogue but it, it's very true i mean when you when you get underneath it or as you approach it and then get underneath it you really marvel at that structural design because you're you're walking like you said past those pylons past those support structures and you really see the immensity of it and how almost miraculous the design is and that's the thing, and that's one thing I love doing, is getting right underneath uh, the center pylon and looking up before you enter the queue. And like you said, getting a sense of that scope and scale. You, you almost lose it as you're walking past it or as you see it from World Showcase. But it's huge. I mean, the thing is is absolutely gigantic. Um, it took 1,700 tons of steel, 26 months to build, 4,000 man-hours, um, and weighs more than 16 million pounds. And... Again, we talk about it as a, in a reverent sort of way, like I said, not because of the attraction or because it's an icon, but I know for me, too, the technology that went into just building it is fascinating. So, for example, you wonder why, if you stand underneath it when it's raining, why you wouldn't get wet as opposed to if it was just a normal ball. Well, those little black gaps in between all the triangles is actually a complex drainage system. And the water is absorbed into these gutters, they're channeled through underground drains, and it's funneled into World Showcase Lagoon. And again, simple, but I think brilliant. And, and again, Lou, you know what, 
you know, here, here's if the listeners have their geek meters turned on, they're they're going to start going off the hook here because <laughs> this is what's really key is in, in tying into just the overall theme of these segments. And you know, we're calling it the Seven Wonders. And you know, you, you can think that's very oh, you know, just kind of gimmicky that we're playing to that. But when you consider the architectural or engineering wonders of things like the Great Pyramids and things like that. This is very much attuned to that, and when you put it on the level of Walt Disney World, you know, sure, you have the castle, you have the technology of the monorail or the Audi animatronics, but this is truly a wonder in the sense that those were wonders, and how those things, you know, when you watch the Discovery Channel, they show you how they built the pyramids. What you just described, just the very simple process of draining the water into the World Showcase Lagoon, is just a marvel. You know, you know, when you when you talk about someone like John Hench just designing this on a napkin, it's ingenious on so many levels. But it's just so significant that way as well, architecturally, engineering-wise. It's just amazing. And they thought about, you know, it Disney, that's what Disney does. They thought about everything. They brought in engineers from MIT. So, again, when you're standing underneath it and that Florida wind starts whipping up, no sort of wind tunnel is created under there that very easily could have been. And that, again, goes to the engineering. And a lot of people, Jeff, might not realize that it's not a single sphere that makes up Spaceship Earth. It's actually two. There's a smaller sphere inside and there's a two foot gap between that structural sphere and the sphere on the outside that really is the outer shell that's made up of all the the, the triangular facets again a, a geeky wonder on her own you've got these aluco bond which is an aluminum composite bond tri- uh, shell of spaceship earth you never see anybody out there cleaning it because it's a self-cleaning um, anodized aluminum plate. It withstands the Florida weather. It's been there for 25 years. And again, the technology in just the exterior, I think, was brilliant in and of itself. And combined with the simplicity of design. It's just amazing. I mean, here, geek, 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 geek. <laughs> right. And, but you know what, though? It's simple. It, you think it's simple on the outside, and you've got these 11,324 triangular facets. But You've got all these interconnected panels that aren't the same right. size and shape, and there's all you know there's pentagons and all different sort of uh, configurations that the panels make up. But one thing that's really cool, I'm going to put a link in this week's show notes to a blog post I did this week, is that a lot of people don't realize at the very top of Spaceship Earth is something really neat, and it's actually a door, and there's a door and there's a safety rod at the top, because the inner sphere that houses the attraction. Um, you can actually walk up through. You can you can take an elevator to a certain point, then walk up a certain point. And then when you get to the top, there's a small sort of service car cherry picker type elevator that can take you up to the top. And if you've seen some of the early promotional videos, you would have seen Mickey Mouse sort of waving from up there. And uh, there's some photos of the view from the top of Spaceship Earth, which are just spectacular. But again, that two sort of layered set of spheres uh, in order to, to accomplish the aesthetic and the engineering uh, challenges that they met, again, simply brilliant. And on top of everything else, they threw an attraction in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Lest, lest we forget, there is uh, one of Walt Disney World's truly, truly classic attractions. And before we get to the changes that have really gone on through the years, Jeff, when we talk about, especially um, a lot of these Epcot Center pavilions, we always talk about the sponsorships, because none of these would have been built without sponsors. And certainly Spaceship Earth was no different. And they had a sponsor, well, sort of one sponsor from day one, and that was the Bell System. Um, and I guess, you know, we're, we're around the same age. You probably remember sort of the breakup of the Bells into 
the baby bells. The baby bells, and, yeah. Right. And that's so it was it was listed as the bell system from eighty two to eighty four. Then they broke up and became whatever they became. And then in nineteen eighty four it actually became AT and T was the sponsor. Yeah, and I, this then that period of time is the is I, I talked to you when we were we were talking beforehand that I'm I'm really I'm a little green on the um those initial years because I didn't actually get to Epcot Center until nineteen eighty seven and that initial attraction design had already been kind of upgraded. It was one of those interesting things. We're so used to almost this this decade long kind of time frame where before something, especially at Epcot Center, gets any kind of upgrade or refurbishment, and this kind of transition not dramatically, but it did have some changes in the in those early years. Absolutely, and if you were a fan of the attraction like we were, they were subtle but noticeable. Um, obviously, Siemens took over in 2005. That the attraction went about a year without a sponsor. And one other thing, too, when we talk about sponsors, a lot of these pavilions in Epcot Center, I see I still call it Epcot Center, they had corporate lounges or VIP lounges, and Spaceship Earth was no exception. Theirs is beautiful. Siemens recently redid it. I actually have had a chance to go up and see it. It's called Base 21. You take uh, an elevator or stairs to get up to it. And if you're in Interventions Plaza and you're looking at the back of Spaceship Earth, you'll see the, the gray sort of uh, semicircle area with the, the large floor-to-ceiling windows. That's actually the VIP lounge that has uh, TVs and, and food and, and beverages and snacks and things like that. Um, comfortable places, meeting spaces up there, as well as um, obviously showcases of some of the Siemens technology. So you need my, to- brother, my brother is a Siemens employee, and I've got to drag him down there and... and- and get me in. Yeah, unfortunately, you can't get in unless you are an employee of Siemens or a quote-unquote friend of an employee of Siemens. (laughs) Um, Relative. Yeah, not that much to see up there anyway. The attraction's really where it is. And again, talking about the changes, Jeff, I want to sort of separate the, the, the sort of the history of the attraction and break out the narrators and talk about them on their own because I think to a certain degree, they're separate and apart um, although obviously very integral to the attraction itself. And there have been four narrators through the years. And the first one is somebody by the name of Vic Perrin. He was from 1982 until 1986. A lot of people either don't remember or they deny that it, that there was anybody else before the second and, and many people's favorite. Um, he was actually a voice artist. He did many, many, many things. If you are a sci-fi fan. The only sort of frame of reference I might be able to give you was that he was the voice of sort of the, the control voice from the old show, The Outer Limits, which ran uh, in the early to mid-60s. And I'll play a little clip of what Vic Perrin sounded like in case you don't remember. Now our future world draws near and we face the challenge of tomorrow. In 1986, when the attraction went through its first major refurbishment, a new narrator as well as some new scenes were brought in and that was Walter Cronkite. And Jeff, I think for a lot of us, that may be a sentimental, if you have to sort of pick a favorite out of, out of the four. Yeah, it's it's Walter Cronkite is iconic to our generation. Um, I know a lot of younger folks today, he's kind of faded. He was an institution. He was a CBS news anchorman starting in the 60s. And he, I mean, he's kind of, we in, in, among some Disney circles where we talk, we, we sort of say he's the other Uncle Walt. He was very similar to Walt Disney in that he was a very kind of almost paternal figure that came into our living rooms on a regular basis. We kind of had this very kind of affectionate, sentimental association with him. And he was a man of integrity. I mean, the, the biggest thing you can say about Walter Cronkite is like, 
I think there were times during the 60s and 70s when he was like named in polls the most trusted American. I mean, he was the person that Americans trusted. He was by far the highest rated newsman among the three networks during his his tenure on CBS. And so he was someone that was just in so many ways, at least in my opinion, a perfect fit for this attraction because, you know, as we know, the attraction theme then as it's, it's as it was established was communications and Walter Cronkite was almost the embodiment of communications for a generation of Americans. I mean, he really was the person who defined the term what a news anchor was. And for many, maybe younger listeners who only know of Walter Cronkite, maybe either from hearing him in Walt Disney World, you know, he had that that longtime catchphrase, and that's the way it is. And that was his thing. But again, you talk about a trusted figure, somebody who sort of redefined broadcast journalism. Uh, he was a person, obviously, Jeff, like you said, the perfect choice for an attraction that's going to talk about the history and the future of communication. And, and it's interesting, too, is there's there's almost, and, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, you, you have to get into the mind of the Imagineers to really determine if, if certain things about Spaceship Earth are intentionally, you know, you know, kind of connected to Walter Cronkite or not, very likely not. But there's there's certain things that, you know, you know, people have to realize that, again, for our generation, one of the most significant events of our generation was the um, moon landing in 1969, in July of 1969. And that moon landing was communicated almost totally, to some extent, by Walter Cronkite. If, you know, if you go back and view historical, you know, tapes, you know, of the the moon landing and everything like 90% of the time, it's going to be Walter Cronkite's broadcasting of that event that you're going to see. And in many ways that plays into the events that are portrayed in Spaceship Earth. And I remember, um, and still to this day, seeing tape, obviously I, I wasn't born yet, but seeing tape of the Kennedy assassination and seeing him reporting on it as it happened. And you can get this sense of professional composure that he had, but but still, he's felt this this personal sense of loss and, and urgency and things like that. And, and there was something about the way that he spoke. And that's why he was just such a perfect narrator for this attraction, because he was able to convey and enhance what you were seeing as you went through it. Ours is a time of unprecedented choice and opportunity. So let us explore and question and understand. Let us learn from our past and meet the challenges of the future. Let us go forth and fulfill our destiny on Spaceship Earth. And again, it was like I said, it was just that connection to the theme. More so than, you know, Vic Perrin who preceded him and to some extent and that's why you know i think you and i are saying he's a sentimental favorite of us especially because he he kind of had the resume that then the next narrator jeremy irons kind of didn't have and that's not taking it away, away anything from jeremy irons narration but again it's just there's just a lot of meaning there behind walter cronkite i agree and and jeremy irons was present from 94 through 2007 um and of course, many Disney fans will recognize his voice as that of Scar from The Lion King, probably first and foremost. And I enjoyed very much so Jeremy Irons, not just because he's got the, the cool accent, but because like Walter Cronkite, um, he had a presence about him and a very commanding tone to his voice. And there was something, again, about conveying that message that he did, I don't want to say equally as well, it was done differently, but... A, narr a narration that I really, really, really enjoyed. Yeah, and I agree with you too. Is, I, is 
I, I do, like I said, I, I have that special place for so many reasons for Walter Cronkite, but again, not taking away. I, I also very, very much enjoy Jeremy Irons as well. And you're right, it's his, where, where Walter Cronkite was very formal and almost brought this kind of dignity to it. Jeremy Irons had kind of, I would best describe it as a haunting type of mm-hmm. <laughs> narration. I mean, it was very... It was very different, and I think that was good. It was because it, 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 it gave the, the the attraction sort of a new feel to it. But it was it's just it had this kind of very haunting feel, and because so much of the attraction is in very dark or dim lighting, it it was very effective. Since the dawn of recorded time, communication has revolutionized our lives and changed our world. We now have the ability and the responsibility to build new bridges of acceptance and cooperation between us, to create a better world for ourselves and our children as we continue our amazing journey aboard Spaceship Earth. Yeah, I, I, the term I was thinking of was almost more so of a sense of emotion than Walter Cronkite, and not yeah, not yeah, in a I, bad way, I think in a very good way. And it was bittersweet for me because what Walter Cronkite brought along with him during his refurb was the Tomorrow's Child song, and we lost that when Jeremy Irons came in. And Tomorrow's Child, for me, I'm, I'm sure for you and a lot of the other you know early Epcot fans, was one of my favorite of all the great early Epcot music. Absolutely. Um, and again... And it's also an interesting, it's, it's something we've talked about, I know we've talked about when we've talked about the music in the theme parks, and we've talked about it in some of our Epcot retrospectives. It plays to that earlier time period for Epcot Center when music was very, very, very integrated into all the attractions and vocal music, not just instrumental music. And Tomorrow's Child was a very iconic representation of the Walter Cronkite um, version of the attraction. And... It seemed like they segued away from a lot of that during the 90s and, and kind of Jeremy Irons' version kind of represents that more subdued approach to the music side of it. Yeah, and again, I think it was an, unfortunately an unfortunate loss um, that was rumored to come back in some form or fashion with the 2007 refurb. Obviously, it did not. What we did get in addition to sort of a radical change in some sections was the introduction of Dame Judi Dench as the narrator. Obviously, the first female narrator bring a very different sort of feel and element to it. Now that you've seen the attraction, Jeff, now that you've ridden it, what do you think of hers, either on its own or in comparison to some of the earlier ones? I I like it. I'm fine with it. But, yeah, I it, I, it would still, it would kind of be ranked. I Like I said, I never experienced the Vic Perrin one. So, you know, she would be rated three out of you know three. <laughs> but that's not, again, that, I'm not saying that as a negative. Or, or kind of dissing her on it. I mean, I just, I like the other two guys more. And I hear, you know, the interesting thing is, I, I if you remember, the rumors that were flying around last year had Patrick Stewart at one point being mentioned as the narrator. And that was kind of very exciting to me because I'm, I'm, I'm a big Star Trek fan, but I'm also a very big Patrick Stewart fan. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Stewart kind of plays to that commanding, what you even were talking about with Jeremy Irons and also with Walter Cronkite, that very strong presence that's there and so that was very exciting when we heard that, that was possible and you know it's not she doesn't quite have the presence that the other guys have and that's and that's my only comment well, that's one of two comments that I'll have to make 
about it. And I do like her. I, I have no problem with her. Uh, you'll recognize her from many, many, many motion pictures. Um, I believe she's she won an Academy uh, won an Academy Award. And I think part of the problem with her narration is again that there's that sense of lack of presence. And I think to a certain degree, Jeff, it might not necessarily be all her fault because of the script itself. I think the script has very much been simplified, um, almost maybe trying to appeal to a much, much younger audience. Um, and there are certain points of reference that I use in there that made me feel that way. And she, when she says things like, do you remember when you learned your ABCs? At this point, each civilization has its own form of writing, which none of the others can understand. But the Phoenicians, who trade with all of them, have a solution. They create a simple common alphabet, adaptable to most languages. Remember how easy it was to learn your ABCs? I can't imagine hearing Jeremy Irons or Walter Cronkite saying that. Yeah, there's there's definitely... There was an aspect where the, the scriptwriters were going for sort of pop culture relevance. You know, it was the first backup system when they're referring to... Mm-hmm. You know the monks um, toiling endlessly, and there no the the Jewish and Islamic scholars. I guess was you know how that was always a point where they saved so much of what was um, burned in Rome. You know that kind of just kind of throwing in the contemporary lingo, and I know what you mean. That's I kind of had that same feeling as well. Yeah, and if you look at some of the dialogue, you know I was I was actually reading some of the scripts, and I and I listened to and I watched the narrations in, in preparing for this, and so for example. I took a section from Walter Cronkite's, and he talked about tomorrow's trials and embodying our hopes and dreams for the future, a future that's made possible by the information age. And it goes on and on, talking about the technologies. And ours ours is a time of unprecedented choice and opportunity. So let's explore and question and understand. It just conveyed a different message in a different kind of way than the Judy Dench version does. And again, it might be a combination of her and the script itself. I don't know what it is. I don't have a problem with it, and I, I still like and I still love the attraction. But again, comparing apples to apples, um, Cronkite and Irons and, and even Vic Perrin, I would probably choose over the current narration. I agree. But in addition to the changes in the narrations that took place during the different refurbishments, obviously the attraction went through a number of changes. And we'll go through scene by scene, but let's sort of highlight some of the things that took place in addition to the, the changes uh, so, for example, when Walter Cronkite took took over in 86, the big change that I remembered was the introduction of Tomorrow's Child. Um, there were some additional warnings, uh, spiels that you still hear to this day. So, for example, when your time vehicle rotates backwards, that's when that warning message came in. The Islamic scholars that appeared after the Burning Rome scene were now Islamic and Jewish scholars. Um, and there were a few other scene changes here and then. I, I, there, I remember... The beginning, right in the post-load area, the fog and the lights uh, as you as you started to be, to begin the ascent, were some of the notable things that I remember. And this is where you have to help me out because was when you get up to the the top portion where where then you're looking at the star field and 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 the Earth was the spaceman always there? Was that in place from the beginning? Because again, I didn't see it till 1987. Yeah, Jeff, you're 100% right, because in the descent portion, in addition to the Earth, you saw astronauts that were working on a space shuttle that was out in space. And again, during the 94 refurb, 
that's when that was taken away. Um, and as long as we're talking about that refurb, there were other things that were take that were changed as well. There were new, there were about a dozen new scenes that were brought in. Again, Tomorrow's Child was one of the things that were lost. Um, there were uh, small things too, like the newspaper boy wasn't screaming extra extra about the New York Daily anymore. There was also, uh, and something else that changed too was as computers were becoming more prevalent and more popular. Uh, they there were three scenes that were deleted near the end of a tr- the attraction. One was a, a, a computer in a boy's bedroom. One was a woman in her office, sort of in the 80s. And there was a big network operations center that sort of represented the 90s. And if you remember, there was a, a three giant screens. There was an, an image of Florida on the left and an op- uh, sort of a, a network map in the center. And then some people in the uh, control room. Those were taken out. Those were replaced with the single scene of the boy and the girl using what would now be considered really the internet from America to Asia via the real-time video chat, and they were sending video um, of each each of their um, sporting events back and forth to each other as well. And that was really significant because that kind of carried over kind of uh, the vignettes that had been done in um, Horizons where you actually had live actors also being portrayed as an animatronic via the screens. Yeah, and it, it's funny now, almost, if you look back and see some of the photos of that, because they, they show this global picture of what network connections look like. And if there's maybe, you know, 150 dots on there, it would be a lot. And obviously, with, with the yeah. advent of the Internet today, um, you can see why. And that's what they did so well, was they kept it relevant. They kept it updated with these things. I mean, the clunky old terminal that was in the woman's office that I remember clearly sort of was, was you know, advanced technologically by leaps and bounds, so that needed to come out. Uh, there were also changes at that time in the post-show, and, you know, the, the, the what took place in the post-show area with the global neighborhood, we'll touch on later, but could really almost be a DSI um, in and of itself. Some of the other changes that took place was obviously the introduction of the giant sorcerer Mickey Hand and Wand uh, during the Millennium Celebration in 99, which, as a quick aside, I never really got why they would use the Sorcerer Mickey Hand and a wand, because I don't remember him ever using a wand in Fantasia. That being said, that was a separate conversation uh, and a debate over the wand. Uh, there was so there were some minor changes in 2000, 2001. Uh, the, sign, the wand changed from uh, 2000, the numbers changed from 2000 to, say, Epcot. And then, obviously, in 2005, Siemens took over as the sponsor and in 2007 we have the dame judy dench and new show scenes and okay we actually need to back up a little bit lou because we did we didn't cover the fact that um in the jeremy irons version um beyond the planetarium uh, at the very top the descent established a whole new set of actual set pieces that while they weren't full-fledged animatronics they were models, and they depicted various communication vignettes. Um, if you remember, they had um, a woman having a child, and she was communicating with her other children. Uh, you had a graduation scene. You had paleontologists um, discovering a dinosaur and communicating with the professor. So you had that kind of whole sequence of scenes as you descended back down, um, going kind of rear-facing, remember? Exactly. What I thought maybe we'd do now, Jeff, is sort of go through the attraction somewhat scene by scene and talk about 
what we see today and see if we can remember some of the things from the Jeremy Irons, the, the previous incarnation, and, and how those have changed um, as we go through. Okay. All right, so the load area always was the same in, in that turntable, although the uh, the funky blue and silver spacesuits have evolved <laughs> since <laughs> 1982 that the cast members had to wear. I remember, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, as you started the ascent, there were scenes of your ride vehicle sort of like blasting off into space. Um, I remember that in, in like 2000, but that now that's obviously changed. There was also a lot of fog effects and swirling you know, clouds from some of the earlier versions. Was I, am I dreaming or do you remember those as well? No, I do. No, I remember that as well. Yeah. But I think that the, the sort of animated sort of computer animated illustrations of how your vehicle was going to turn and things like that. And like you said, the blast off, I think that kind of, that went into place with the Jeremy Irons narration in in 94. Right. Exactly. So now when you're going up the ascent, um, You've got this face recognition program, and you'll look to the right and see yourself on screen and hear the instructions, which are obviously now, I get, you know, we should have even mentioned, the changes in the ride vehicles is that now there's this 15-inch touchscreen that asks you where you're from, what language you want the, your instructions in, and then tells you, look to the right, and you're going to get your picture taken, and you'll see at the end of the attraction exactly um, how and why that's used. But the first real scene that you see and show scene is of prehistoric man that's a giant projection on the left wall that's been enhanced just a little bit you might remember um, the woolly mammoth and, and and the cavemen are much more animated now there there's new cgi there's new projection techniques it's much more vivid much brighter before going into the actual caveman scene that takes place on the left hand side right i believe those were almost I, 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 my recollection is that they were prior to the current upgrade. They were always pretty much just static images that kind of filtered across the screen as you went past. Right. And that actually continues on in the caveman scene because the static images that used to be on the wall are now done really well with animation effects. And and I, I got to say that was the moment. I mean, I was totally blown away with the with the new version when you saw that. It was much clearer. I think when in the prior incarnations, the when we're talking about the woolly mammoth scene and and kind of the big screen there on your left, it was a bit kind of fuzzier and kind of not quite as in focus. And when it comes up and it almost plays like a movie now, a very quick movie scene, and it's very very large, it's very cool. But then what really struck me when when I wrote it for the first time with in the new new newest version is that when you went into that cave scene of the you know, Cro-Magnon men or whatever that animation on the wall and you mm-hmm. kind of two things happen is you you know you notice that immediately and you went wait a minute that's 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 neat and then you also saw that the animatronics were upgraded as well yeah you'll see that he is much more fluid and like you said jeff you'll see that throughout the ride but there was something that i had noticed and i thought that i was either crazy or getting old or losing my hearing but it just seemed quieter uh the the audio from the scenes seemed quieter, and I actually rode the attraction with someone who worked on the audio for it, and he actually pointed that out as well. He said when Imagineering first turned it over to operations, the sounds from the different scenes were much louder. You could actually hear more of what they were saying, uh, some of the sound effects, and he was almost, dare I say, a little bit disappointed at how low they were. So you hear more of the Judy Dench narration and less of the ambient and background sound effects, but... 
From there, you moved to the Egyptian temple. That has pretty much stayed the same. But again, the, uh, the, the guy that's pounding the reeds flat, if you look at the old video of the attraction, look at him now, you see such a big difference. And that's significant, and, it's, and that was very encouraging because when you, when you realize that the best example is what you just gave is the guy that was pounding out the papyrus. Did they really need for what was just a split second of your recognition of that particular character, did they really need to upgrade him that much? Probably not, but they did. And it's and, it, and when you take then that as a whole, as we will talk about all the other scenes, it was just, I think it was it was such an unexpected thing on our part as, as Disney fans when we were looking at this upgrade of Spaceship Earth. I don't think we were necessarily expecting a very big difference in the animatronics, and that was, it was just it was a really, really great surprise. Well, the perfect example to further your point about details that we would probably never notice. Here is one of the first of many details that they put in the background that you probably wouldn't catch. And unless you are, you know, way up on your translation of Egyptian hieroglyphs, yes, uh, would never realize going, yeah. that they're recreations of actual writings or that the letter is a duplicate of one that was sent, you know, thousands of years ago by an Egyptian pharaoh to another person. But that's the level of detail. And as we go through the different scenes, you'll see they took that same careful attention in everything that they did. And especially in this case, the, the, uh, the, the language that the pharaoh is speaking is authentic. Right, absolutely. And it happens again, too. The next scene is the Phoenician merchants, which, again, has pretty much stayed the same. It's a little bit more vivid, a little bit brighter. But the next scene originally was a Greek play, and the scene that they were recreating was from Oedipus Rex. Now it's a Greek uh, mathematician who's teaching his students. But again, who else but somebody who maybe spoke, you know, classic Greek would know that it would be from that play. And we kind of transitioned there to the Roman scene, and this is where I had my only real disappointment. I, I bet you're going to I know exactly I know, what it is. I know exactly where I'm going with it. The chariot's gone, buddy. <laughs> I have to admit, east, west, north, south, right. all roads lead to Rome. And that little white chariot guy in the background was a, a cool element of the scene that I wish they would have kept. East, west, north, and south, all roads led to Rome. Right. It was just. It was just, and it was one of those things that, 20 years ago when you first saw it it was unexpected it was that was one of those things that's that's very passe now in these type of you know in, in theme park entertainment but back then a piece of animation being projected on a static scene like that was very very cool i mean it was really a great attention grabber and i guess we we again having been around this long have that kind of sentimental attachment to it and again here writings found in the ruins of Pompeii were recreated on the walls of this scene. So, And the horse. There's a big horse there. There's that a big was, horse. And his tail <laughs> swishes. You know, it's great. Geek I saw, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this too, Jeff, for me, there's something else about what follows this scene or is part of this scene that was always one of the most amazing and awe-inspiring, still to this day, favorite parts of the attraction is when Rome is burning. And you can yeah. smell that scent of smoke and sulfur and whatever. That's so realistic. Not that I know what it smells like to have Rome burning, but you can get the sense <laughs> of 
almost smelling the flames in the distance. And it's by the use of something that, that Disney calls a smellitzer that was um, designed by somebody by Bob McCarthy that's used throughout the parks. It was used in Horizons. It's used uh, to a lesser degree in Soren. It's used on Main Street USA. But the effect here, I think, is probably more pronounced than anywhere else. And it's and, it, and again, it gave you... You're, you know, you're, you're reliving history, and I think it really, all of a sudden, it's it takes it to an epic level. I mean, you're seeing destruction, <laughs> you know, being portrayed, and it's it's just, it was an amazing set piece. I, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I really like that scene a lot. And as you move into the next scene, which is the Islamic Empire, and the narration talks about, yes, you know, all of these uh, books in the Library of Alexandria were lost, but... Here, books were copied in the Middle East by hand, and you made reference to uh, Judy Dench talking about the first backup system. And this is the first, or one of many, of the contemporary references that I got here that we didn't really, you didn't really get in some of the earlier narrations. I don't know if that threw me off, or if I didn't like it, or, you know, as a geek, maybe I should have, but there was something about the calling this the first backup system that again, I felt was a little trivializing. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the next scene, again, one of my favorites is the Cathedral Abbey. That's where the monks are recording the books by hand. You've got the sleeping monk. The second monk is sleeping. Again, simple detail. His breathing almost seems like he's right. more realistic as opposed to just a back and forth up and down motion um it looks no. as though he's, he's there's literally somebody sitting there sleeping no who no isn't one of those william taft <laughs> <laughs> there's actually yeah there's actually a, a lot of these animatronic figures are or use the models of audio animatronic figureheads from the hall of presidents that were designed by blaine gibson it was just easier to kind of use those models I, from what I understand, there's William Howard Taft is in there. I think Andrew Jackson is in there somewhere. Um, I think he is one of the people in the Renaissance scene. So um, I don't think that any of them are the woman in the with the with the uh, the big hair in, in the computer <laughs> scene. So <laughs> um, the next one is the Gutenberg Press, and they talk about inventing the future with books. And again, here the Bible that's being inspected by uh, Johann Gutenberg is an exact copy of one of the pages from the original Bibles. And the type in the printing press is actually movable. I mean, that is that is a real working uh, copy of a, a Gutenberg press from the 1400s, mid-1400s. Yeah, it's the, that whole sequence. And again, I think one of the things we're, we're forgetting to kind of mention here is, is realize how your track is taking you. You're spiraling. And again, the ingeniousness of how these sets, as you wound through these sets coming around, you're, you're following a spiral path through the, the sphere. And when you suddenly realize how they're, the story they're telling you by going this type of route and how these scenes were designed one on top of each other as you ascend is just phenomenal because it, it's, there's, a, there's a subtle degree of storytelling you're, you're ascending humanity is growing elevating itself time after time and it's just it's, it was an ingenious kind of combination of architecture and storytelling it's just it's amazing I think actually the next scene is very much representative of that of the, of the architecture right. and the storytelling and you know big credit to the person and I believe it was a woman 
who was able to recreate. I mean, somebody had to go and recreate that painting of the Sistine Chapel. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, I know Michelangelo did it first, and he did a great job, but boy, that's a pretty good facsimile. Granted, she didn't do it laying on her back, but I love the Renaissance scene. I, I just love right. all the different elements in here. You know, you've got Da Vinci, and you've got Michelangelo, and again, contrasting the various narrations, the epic, really epic scope that takes you back to Walter Cronkite was his very, very you know, line, behold the majesty of the Sistine ceiling. Right. I mean, and it had a very much grander feel to it as how it's presented now. Yeah, and there's a couple of other subtle changes. Um, the painting that is being painted on the left-hand side is somewhat different. He's now painting fruit, I noticed. If you look very, very carefully, um, the statue that is being sculpted of a, a somewhat half-nude woman is now sort of censored a little bit. Um, her Half of her, I'm making hand gestures here, top was exposed. Um, it is now covered by sort of um, unchiseled cement. I guess Disney just sort of felt it was a little bit better to kind of keep that left to the imagination, as, as it would say. But here, Jeff, is where I started to pick up one of the other changes. And we talked about the music. One thing Disney did with the 2007 refurbishment was bring in Emmy Award winning composer Bruce Broughton. And in the Sistine Chapel scene is where you really can tell. The, you can hear the 63-piece right. orchestra and the voice choir. And the one thing that he did that I really, again, commend him for the attention to detail for was he brought in a lot of instruments and particular styles that were appropriate to the time period. And you, got, you get a sense of, of traveling back in time like you are supposed to have been. Yeah, you're, I agree with you 100% on that. It's a, it's a very, again, epic feel to it, but then without the narration... That, they, that like you said it's almost all simply music that's getting you through that scene true and the next scene on the left is the is sort of the industrial revolution uh, that is the printing press room from the late 1800s that has gone through some small changes as well the actual uh, animatronic figure that's reading has changed over the years now he has a, a mustache and he's got glasses and he's also reading a paper that says civil war over this steam press, again, a replica of the one that was developed by William Bullock in 1863. Uh, the paper boy, I don't know, Jeff, you tell me if he was there. He's gone, albeit, I think, temporarily. For a while, he was sort of in the back, facing backwards in a sort of... Right, I was, he was, was just that, about... Which was eerily reminiscent of the last scene of the Blair Witch Project, which is how... Yeah. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. I was hoping you would bring it up because, you know, you and I, we both kind of experienced... They, they did very a very staggered kind of gradual soft opening on this version we'll probably talk a little bit about towards the end of our segment here but that was one of the things that i noticed that you know we we first got got to see it in you know unfinished albeit but in december when we were at mouse fest i again returned in january i know you've been back a few times and it wasn't until this past march visit that i really actually saw the, the attraction in its entirety but i'll tell you that I have a memory, very distinct memory, of, in December of the newsboy facing us. In January and March, I remember what you just said. He was pushed back in the scene and turned around. And I thought there was still audio at some point coming from him. And now, when I was here this last visit, just last week, he's gone. He's totally gone. And I don't, you know, I'm curious as to, is he gone? Is he just gone completely? But it was just an odd kind of thing. Well, there's two other characters, too, in the Renaissance scene. On the right-hand side, up on the balcony, 
uh, who were playing, I think they were playing the musical instruments. One was a lute and one was a lyra. They're gone too. And my assumption is maybe it's just temporarily. Maybe they just haven't been brought in. Yeah, as well. But next theme and sort of the advancement um, in sort of a big advancement with um, being able to communicate via the spoken word. And then the age of invention brings us to a scene that's gone through a number of, again, subtle, forgive the geeky changes. The cinema scene has had, originally had multiple screens showing clips from the, uh, I'm trying to remember originally what it had. Um, Jesse Owens winning the gold medal. I think, oh no, it had, it had 20,000 leagues under the sea. It's Steamboat Willie. Yeah, right. And, and Steamboat Willie. Uh, now it's got the Berlin Olympics. It's got Mickey in the band concert and a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie. And then there was the other, the the family then coming up on the left-hand side is kind of you're going into the 50s. But actually now it's evolved a little further, and this kind of brings us back full circle to what I was alluding to before with these kind of subtle touches is now they are watching that 1969 moon landing. Right. And and that, that screen has gone through changes as well. As one At one point it was Ozzy and Harriet was there, and, and uh, a segment from the Ed Sullivan show was on there. There was also and a Walt football... Disney. Right, there was right. Walt Disney was up in the upper left-hand corner. You're right. There was also the football game, the Browns game uh, right. with Jim Brown was on there as well. And that was an interesting scene because they, they have consolidated it now to just the family watching, you know, Walter Cronkite and the moon landing. But it was one where the, you had the TV but then you had the multiple screens above it and it was almost sort of a simulation of them changing channels and sort of representing multiple networks at the time. Right, but the the family that watches TV together, you know, stays together. And if you look right. behind the couch very carefully, do you see what game is on the floor? Yes, mousetrap. Mousetrap. <laughs> and I'm glad I, this this was fortuitous because I did not notice that until last week, and it was funny because I was I was riding with my wife and I just I was like mousetrap, <laughs> and she's like, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah, I know. We we really need to start paying attention to yes. actually what's going on on the attractions themselves. <laughs> you know what? Wait a minute. I think originally. I remember seeing Charlie Chaplin film in the maybe that's what it was. maybe the Charlie Chaplin film was first in the cinema when this was it Buster f- Keaton was it the Buster Keaton where he was like falling from the clock I don't know I don't know it, maybe that was one of the scene maybe that was one of them that played the yeah. right yeah I distinctly remember Charlie Chaplin uh, and if you look carefully at the woman in the ticket booth her newspaper says Owens wins gold again. Uh, make a reference to the Berlin Olympics from 1936, which oh, are playing the, on the... Yeah, and the other thing we, we kind of zipped past there without mentioning that I just realized we forgot was the radio, radio station, yep. the radio station scene where originally it was it, it was set up the same way, but originally it was portraying a... Ra- they were basically actors portraying a radio drama. That has now changed to a newsman actually doing a news report. Right, and if you look at his microphone, it says WDI for Walt Disney Imagineering. Mm-hmm. It looks very much like the setup that we use to record the show when yes. when you come on. Very, very professional. <laughs> when when I when you fly up to the studio here in Scotch Plains, but and we have those we have we actually have those old fashioned microphones like you see in in the logo. Of the show. That's right, <laughs> and I and I wear a fedora <laughs> when I broadcast, just so you know. <laughs> um, here, Jeff, we take uh, again another big leap technology wise and. Um, change in show scene wise because we've got this information age and the very large very beautiful I think computer room um, that takes place on both sides of the vehicle and it's interesting it's because it's very jarring <laughs> it's you go and the, I think I mentioned earlier how this has always been a very 
subdued lit attraction and boy when you first come into this room and it and it just screams 1970s i mean <laughs> on, on, on every possible level but in a, in a good way because yes, absolutely yeah. I, yeah i'm not I'm not mocking i am not mocking you but it it just it really does right down to the fashions and everything but i mean it's it gives you a great sense of time and place and a reference point to the change in computer technology. So for kids of this generation who maybe some of the earlier stuff doesn't, they can't relate to, kids, that's what computers used to look like. I mean, you've got your PSP and your your iPhone, but that's what a computer looked like. And then you see this sort of, again, being a computer geek, that progression to the next scene where you see the, you know, scraggly geek hunched over in his garage on what would be the first PC. Um, to me is almost more impressive than the boy and the girl communicating via video screens. Because it's 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 part of our frame of reference and it just shows what's happened in, in what, fifteen years, fifteen to twenty years. Exactly. And and there have been talk about is it Steve Jobs, is it Steve Wozniak, is it, you know, Hewlett and or Packard? Um, <laughs> I think it's just sort of an amalgamation of probably more so Jobs and Wozniak. Um, you definitely know that it's in California. You see the, the Pinto out front, you know, in the mailbox. And again, ride this attraction a hundred times just for that scene because there's so much cool stuff to look at, whether it be the half-eaten box of pizza or the Fleetwood Mac uh, pictures on the walls. <laughs> you know, a lot of just the, again, Jeff, they must have just had so much fun finding all these things for that scene alone. And again, like you said, in this whole sequence, in very, very stark contrast to kind of sort of the high-tech, what was being portrayed in the prior version. And you know what? Forgive me. I, I just remembered we were talking about changes and little details. We totally glossed over the Promontory Peak Morse code section in the scene before. Um, oh, yeah. Where the Morse yeah. code mesh is, is, is talking about the... Um, the golden spike over Promontory right. Peak back in 1869, but I was so excited to get to this change because it was so big and it was so pronounced that I really wanted to start talking about it. And the next scene threw me off a bit. Um, you go into this tunnel of digits and numbers and facts and figures, but sci-fi geeks, anybody that, you know, it's the Matrix. It's the Matrix tunnel um, with the, those green sort of falling down waterfall of numbers and symbols but from here this again you talked about that spiraling up the track to what you might not realize now is the top for the most part of spaceship earth and this is a pivotal point for me in the attraction in its history and where it is today because this is when your vehicle turns and you get the big reveal of earth in, in the, the planetarium setting and the star field and whatnot. And, and I'll tell you why this, this was important and for me, especially with the change in the narration, because with Walter Cronkite, with Jeremy Irons, you had a moment. When you saw that globe, there was a moment in their dialogue that it was a wow moment. And it just, something is missing in either her presentation of it or in the narration of it that just didn't have that same sort of like how impact for me it, it's it's almost as if and I, you're absolutely right it's almost as if they're taking for granted that everybody's wrote it before and they know what the payoff there is and so let's just you know we don't have to we don't have to give it and i think that's i think they underestimated that because it is like you said it's that pivot the car pivots 
and it's just boom it's like it's right there and you're absolutely right it's a wild moment and and the music is building and yeah it's it, it does seem a little bit more subdued than it was on the on the past incarnations yeah and, and the scene is still beautiful in and of itself and it's it's darker and it, it's you definitely get more a sense of the being surrounded by everything that you're seeing but as far as the the accompanying narration and the music that went along with it and that's Unfortunately, what I was hoping for here, and this is where I realized that I had lost it, was that memorable music in the attraction. Even the earlier theme song with Jeremy Irons, even when we lost Tomorrow's Child, which I think was was a huge loss for the attraction. I don't, I didn't walk out of this attraction, and I didn't hit this moment with like that powerful music behind that reveal moment, and that, and that's my right. my one criticism of this section specifically. But. And again, for a lot of people, Jeff, this is a, a, pardon the pun, a turning point, not just because your vehicle is turning to rotate backwards on your descent back to Earth, but the descent is very different from what it originally was. And you talked about having not necessarily anim, anima, animatronic scenes, but animated scenes and physical sets that you saw as you went down. Right. And one of my very, very favorite parts of Spaceship Earth that is sadly missing now, but, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting swap, which we'll talk about as we talk about the newest incarnation. But my one of my very favorite set pieces in all of Epcot Center was as you descended, you come to the port part where you have kind of the futuristic city skyline, and all the optic fibers mm-hmm. representing lines of communication are kind of rainbowing over, you know, the city, and eventually it's a trail, you know, it's forming a kind of light optic fiber light trail. That eventually comes and then spirals around the model of Spaceship Earth itself. Right, and the music in that scene was very—I mean, it, it's something that you took away with you. Right, and I think that even even enhanced that. Originally, on the descent in the very very early versions, and even with the Walter Cronkite version, you had these sort of screens with abstract images of silicon chips and shapes. And, you know, it was obviously a bit of foreshadowing of what was to come. In future versions, in the Jeremy Irons version, you had the scene with the kids who were playing the um, the flying simulator, the aerodynamic yeah, simulator game. the classroom kind of thing, and it becomes a bee and everything. Right, yeah. they go to Mars, and it's a bee, and it's all these different vehicles. One becomes a butterfly, uh, and they're sort of video networking with kids from around the world, from India, from China, from other parts of, of Africa. Uh, again, showing the... Um, the ability to communicate in such more advanced ways. The descent really marks not our travel back in time, but our travel forward in time. There was also a scene, I'm trying to remember, with um, the people communicating from a planet to home and a woman communicating, I think, with her, her parents or her grandparents with a kid from the graduation. Lots of different... The graduation. Right, yeah. a lot of different sort of advanced technologies and communications, which for, in many respects, we have today. Yeah, they were, there was the, like I think I mentioned before, there was the paleontologist. They were kind of using the ultrasound to send it back to a professor at the college. There was the graduation sequence. There was the woman giving birth um, that were, you know, coming down. And they were using, they were very, very cool because they were using forced perspective in their modeling. And it, it, it was in a very confined space as you were coming down. They were doing these scenes to great effect with, like I said, with the limited amount of space they were using. Right, and today we have a very, very, very different uh, 
descent than we did before. Originally, when I saw it, when it opened for soft previews, it was nothing but black curtains. Now we have sort of these purple and blue mirrored images of lights that sort of trail out in, into infinity. But our focus is not meant to be on what's around us, but it's mo- meant to be on the screen in front of us because this is where the interactive element of the attraction begins. And you're asked questions about what's important to you. Is it home? Is it work? Is it travel? Is it planning for your vacation or getting to your vacation? And where would you like to live? And a number of different questions. And from there, they create a customized future just for you. And this is where the photos that they took of you at the beginning come into play because they put your, you know, your driver's license picture face on these, you know, little skinny bodies. And, uh, I mean, for what it is, Jeff, I mean, it's fun. It it definitely offers an interactive element with the person that you're sitting with next to you. It's funny. It's done very well. Um, My original feeling was it's something I would have liked to see maybe in a post-show area, not on the attraction itself. I missed the scenery and, and the little dioramas on the descent. But for what it is, it's done well, and uh, the technology actually works. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll actually kind of go one step further with it, is that you know we were talking about our progression through experiencing this new version, and like going back to December when we all first kind of wrote it, we were, like I said, at Milesfest together. And it, at that point, I don't even believe they had the animation in place. Um, there was The descent was, there was nothing going on. The screen wasn't in place. They were sort of just very not even a soft opening they were just kind of getting people through and just kind of getting their impressions of things and in january some of the animation kicked in but at that point um when i wrote it then and i know you had a different experience because it was it was working more when we wrote it the actual um transfer of your face onto the animated characters wasn't taking place so we went through kind of we saw this this animation but it wasn't working to that extent so we still weren't getting the full effect of the ride and so as i was going through these various visits over the course of six months i really wasn't experiencing the ride as it was ultimately intended to be and finally when i went in march i did finally see it all the way through and i think i really it was interesting because I, I went from like you just said i went from saying oh they, they had these wonderful set pieces here at the end on the descent and now there's just blank walls and there's some flash animation and this is kind of disappointing and what the heck were they thinking but when you finally get the, the attraction as it exists now in its final incarnation I absolutely love it and I'll, and I'll kind of tell you why is that it you're going through that and as you mentioned it is very reminiscent of a post show but it took me back to the old um, Earth Station and it took me back to the old Communicore interactive kind of exhibits and it kind of bring them, it brought them into the ride. But what was key was that it was something that I wasn't expecting, even though Project Tomorrow had been set up, was when you exited the ride now, and not to give too much of a spoiler to the folks that haven't done it yet, is when you exit the ride, you're still, you're walking into Project Tomorrow, but you're still interacting with what happened on the ride. It's, you know, I, I don't know how much we want right, to right. give away here, but... That was very, very cool to me, and it was something that was so totally unexpected, and it just took me back to the World Key kiosks and the um, and uh, Earth Station with the large screens and kind of this very large scope interaction, and it just was. I just really liked it a lot, and and, keep, and people kind of will know what I'm talking about. And I, like I said, I don't want to spoil it for the people that don't. Exactly, and that's what I finally realized after I had written it a number of times was. 
it was actually sort of a, a tribute back to what was what were those world key information kiosks where you got to go in and interact, which for so many people was their introduction to computers and certainly to personal computers and the ability to use computers in your daily life. And to that extent, uh, I appreciate that and I like and I like that element of it. And I like the fact that you are engaged in the attraction beyond just being a passive observer. You are now interacting with it while you're on it. And like you said, Jeff, when you get off. And unfortunately, because this segment went so long, I think we need to t- we need to separate the what took place in the post show and all the changes and all the cool things that were in there for another segment because I just want to ask you now that we've gone through the attraction and the history um, you know obviously you like it but if in sort of a a grand scale how do you think it compares or or how do you feel now versus the old versions and the Walter Cronkite version that you admittedly love so much it's very different now because they've they've basically they've taken away the communications theme and a lot of people I mean in some circles that came to be a little bit controversial but that didn't really bother me and I do I really really do enjoy this new version because more than anything when we've seen Epcot evolve and in some cases you know where it's evolved away from sort of this future vision you know when we see like the turns that have taken for the seas with Nemo and Test Track you know Spaceship Earth still truly truly retains so much of sort of the spiritual origins of Epcot Center and what what I gotta say is what what makes Spaceship Earth so very very important to me and the reason I I really love it so much as you kind of look at the history of the attraction as we've talked about Spaceship Earth really represents what we have lived through the past 20 to 30 years I mean Spaceship Earth as it was envisioned as, as, as the attraction was conceived it's predicted our lives. I mean, it is really, it resonates on such a level that, again, brings us back to what Epcot Center was originally conceived to be, and especially Future World. And whereas we've, you know, we've not seen so many of the advancements that were projected in things like um, Horizons or, you know, the Living Seas or the, or the Land, you know, Spaceship Earth has come true. Um, this, this, it, you were quoting some of the um, Walter Cronkite dialogue earlier, Lou, and it just demonstrates the fact that we're here talking this way, communicating via computers, via podcasting. That is what Spaceship Earth was telling us 20 years ago, and now we're living the embodiment of that. And just, it just, it just resonates. It just really, really hits home, and it just makes it so very significant. And that's exactly what I felt was always the future technologies that they showcased were, like you said, more so predictions than fantasy. And that's one of the things I loved was that these things really came true. I mean, we don't you're not, you made reference to horizons and the hover cars and things like that. But it was a great it was very accurate in what it was talking about. And going back to, you know, the Walter Cronkite line about the technologies expanding our capabilities and and this being a time of choice and opportunity and exploring and quest, it all sort of carries over even today in the current version. And I think physically the, the structure is just a perfect icon. Uh, I mean, Cinderella Castle is what it is, but more so than anything else, it is a perfect icon. I think it has an incredible message, incredible lessons to be learned. It's definitely an educational attraction that, again, people might be enjoying so much they don't realize they're being educated on. It gives us a sense 
of our past, not just individually, but collectively, and our roots to other people and other cultures that we may not have been able to make that connection before we actually see it in front of us and before the narration sort of takes us through it. Uh, it is really indicative. It's like a network of all of our collective knowledge, and it's what's created by us and for us. And it also demonstrates, if you look through the different incarnations, how Moore's Law, the fact of technology doubling every few years, has really come into play because no longer is it doubling every hundred years or ten years or five years. It's happening so much faster now, and it's almost on a year-to-year kind of basis. Uh, and it, it's, it almost inspires you for what's to come. And I know that might sound a little you know, grandiose and over-melodramatic, but that's how this attraction's always made you feel when you came off. And I still think to this day the message that you get, specifically in The Ascent, is definitely what that does. Yeah, it's it's a feel-good kind of situation of epic proportions and like we talked about you know and then you walk off and you're you're still with that scope you're with that magnificence of just this this huge iconic symbol and it just stays with you it's just amazing i know i'm, I'm kind of going gibberish here but that's that's the geek well coming out. we said we were going to talk about this with probably a level of passion that maybe we haven't talked about since maybe either communicore or journey into imagination or horizons uh because of what the attraction and what it stands for sort of means to us. And I know, you know, we're talking about a theme park attraction here, but it really, it's the message. And and again, quoting the Walter Cron- Cronkite narration, our links with the past and our hopes for the future, that's really the message beyond communications, beyond technology. That's what this attraction has always conveyed. And I think it still conveys. And I think that's why it is, um, as one, and I think that's why we're as passionate about it as we are. It's it's not necessarily the destination, it's the journey, and that's why it's called Spaceship Earth. It's not a stagnant thing, it's it's something that's moving. Jeff, thanks for taking the time, and I know it was a lot of time to really explore this attraction with me. Uh, it was my pleasure, Lou. This this was a joy. This is this was, as we've said, one of our very very favorite things to talk about. So yeah, I had a great time. Thank you. All right, so one last time, tomorrow's child. Go ahead. Now our future world draws near, and we face the challenge of tomorrow. We must return and take command of our spaceship Earth to become captains of our own destiny to reach out and fulfill our dreams. Thank you for traveling aboard Spaceship Earth. Please gather your belongings and watch your step onto the moving platform. The platform and your vehicle are moving at the same speed. That's all the time we have this week. I want to say thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. I had a lot of fun creating and producing the show this week. And so I want to thank you for listening and allowing me to do what I love to do each and every week. 
Big thanks to J.D. Roth and 3Ball Productions. I really had a great time speaking with him. And don't forget to check the show notes over at WDWRadio.com to find out how you and your family can be on Opportunity Knocks this fall and turn your neighborhood into a stage for a chance to get on TV and win some amazing prizes. Also, thanks to Jeff Pepper for journeying with me aboard Spaceship Earth. I'll post some photos and some links in the show notes this week as well. If you have a question that you want answered, a segment suggestion, or anything else you want to share, email me at lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail and be on the air at 206-202-4WDW. That's 206-202-4939. You can call in with your comments, questions, or just to say hi. Don't forget also to check out on our show notes page some special deals from my partners, including Owner's Locker, where for a limited time you can save $50 off the standard annual plan. You can sign up at ownerslocker.com. Be sure to indicate that you heard about the offer from me. Hit recalculate order and your discount will be applied in order to take advantage of the offer. Also, our friends over at All Star Vacation Homes will give you a free rental car and $50 gas card with your seven-night stay in a three-, four-, or five-star vacation home. You can search for your vacation home at allstarvacationhomes.com or you can call them to find out how you can save on your next vacation. Just mention the code WDWTRIVIA when you book in order to take advantage of that offer. As I mentioned at the top of the show, remember, you can pre-order your Adventureland CD starting this Monday and save $1 off the price of the CD if you order Main Street USA and Adventureland together. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes page, or you can visit the shopping page over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Also, while you're there, look for a video teaser of Main Street USA on the homepage of DisneyWorldTrivia.com. One for Adventureland is coming soon. The guide's tentative release date will likely be somewhere around the week of July 14th. Stay tuned next week for the big announcement that I've been hinting at to celebrate the release of the guide. And if you are a new listener, or if you haven't been to the site in a while, go and check out the new WDWRadio.com. There's a lot of new features, as well as the ability to get a list of all the shows with topics that are covered. So if you want to go back, maybe listen to a show you might have missed, maybe check out some of the other seven wonders that are on the list. You can go and see those at WDWRadio.com. To comment on or talk about the show with other listeners, please visit the WDW Radio forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And of course... If you like the show, I ask you to please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Have a great week. Thanks again for tuning in. See ya.